Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> and welcome to New Books in East Asia. I just had the really great pleasure of speaking with Eric Rath about his recent book, Food and Fantasy in Early Modern Japan, and that came out with University of California Press in 2010. Now, this is a book that manages to be simultaneously very concise and very, very rich. Rath takes us from medieval culinary manuscripts written by men of the knife all the way down to things like Benihana and California rolls. He uses this study to look at the way early modern Japanese culinary texts really provided a means for authors, readers, and eaters to fantasize with food and offers readers a fascinating window into the cookbooks, the recipes, the culinary fiction, the culinary literary forms, and ritual eating practices of early modern Japan. So hi, Eric. We're here today to talk with Eric Rath, who is an associate professor of history at the University of Kansas, about his recent book, a really excellent book, Food and Fantasy in Early Modern Japan. Now, this is a... It's a tremendously fun book to read, um, and it offers us a way um, not just to rethink the history of Japanese cuisine, but also to think about the concept of cuisine in general um, and the work that it does. And it does this by giving readers a snapshot of many different facets of cuisine and cuisine culture in early modern Japan. So, Eric, thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background and your previous projects? Well, uh, in terms of my academic background, I started off as a scholar of Japanese theater, the classical no-drama, the one with the masks that dates back 600 years. And I uh, wrote a book about that and was, was very interested for a long time. But then while I was finishing up that book, I was also uh, living in Kyoto, and I decided one of the things that I had to do was work in a Japanese restaurant. So uh, I got a job as a waiter at a Japanese restaurant, and I saw how much of the food is performed in the restaurant. And I thought, well, maybe there's something about performance and food that I could research. Uh, and then one thing led to another, and I became interested in this project. That's great. So um, that so you actually made it from no drama to the history of Japanese cuisine by an interest in food and performance. That's right, initially. Is that right? So when did you start working on this project? Oh, I'd say about 10 or 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, living, I had a chance to go to Japan uh, for the summer to begin this project uh, through a research grant from my university and uh, interviewed a lot of chefs at that time. That's when I really seriously started working on it. But I think my interest in Japanese cuisine goes way back uh, to high school, uh, going out to Japanese restaurants with my friends and uh, wondering about what we were eating and how to eat it. So that perhaps is my initial inspiration. It's great. <laughs> I always like to eat. So. 
Right. Now, I was going to actually ask you about this later, but since you brought it up, um, one of the things that you say early on in the book that um, really started or provided some of the bedrock upon which the rest of the study was built were these interviews um, in 2000 in Kyoto. Is that right? The summer of 2000 in Kyoto? Yes, that's right. Um, with chefs. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to interview these chefs, maybe how you found them, um, anything that really surprised you in the course of these interviews? Yeah, I just tried to find the oldest restaurants in Kyoto, and some of these restaurants claim to go back to the late 16th century. And I thought, well, if I want to study the origins of Japanese cuisine, what better place than Kyoto, and what better beginning to, to talk to the people in these restaurants. I had uh, learned a lot about no theater by talking to actors, and that really informed my perspective on no drama. So I thought, well, the best way to begin this project would be to talk to chefs and learn how they understand the traditions of their cuisine. So I wrote a, many chefs, about oh, two dozen chefs in Kyoto, and most of them were uh, responded very quickly and got back to me and said they'd be willing to meet. And, I arranged interviews with them, and uh, it was it was interesting to see that a lot of them had the same things to say about Japanese cuisine, uh, about its origins and how it originated in temple cuisine and in tea ceremony cuisine and in the daily cuisine of commoners in Kyoto. That's what they really emphasized to me, those, those three things. But as I started doing history, uh, more historical research on it, I... I began to wonder, how do, I, how do I research that? How do I prove that? And actually came up with a number of different other influences on, on Japanese cuisine in that period, early modern period, 1600 to 1868. So initially it was very informative, but then I, I um, began to question some of the things that they told me, and that opened, opened new, new questions for me in my research. So, for example, what were the kinds of things that you were told that you that you then went on to question in the course of your research? Well, I asked one chef about the uh, character of Japanese cuisine. And he said, no, you don't want to study Japanese cuisine. You want to study Kyoto cuisine, because that's the best cuisine in, in all of, of Japan. You should study its history. And its history is intertwined with the history of Japanese cuisine as a whole. Uh, so you hear some things like that that obviously shows a Kyoto bias. One wonders if one went to Osaka or Tokyo, if chefs there would have a different view of things. Mm-hmm. And then you get these uh, rather strange claims, too, about the character of Kyoto cuisine. One chef took me into his confidence. He leaned forward and he said, you know, Kyoto cuisine, it's really about one thing. I listened and he said, it's all about the water. You see, Kyoto water has a special acidic level. And uh, Inks went on in great scientific detail about the water and how it was perfect for uh, making soup stock, which is the basis of so many dishes in Japanese cuisine. And uh, I took all these notes down. And then I asked another chef about it. And he looked at me for a second and started laughing. He said, what are you talking about? We all get our water from the tap. We don't get water from a well. Maybe that was true 100 years ago when people were using well water, uh, but not today. So you have this very uh, mythological type uh, or uh, reductionistic or essentializing uh, 
claims about Kyoto cuisine, uh, but then some other people are a little more cynical about that. And so it really brings to attention uh, the fact that a lot of what people, uh, a lot of what makes cuisine is what people say about it. Mm-hmm. It's the water, it's the ingredients, uh, it's the land, it's the terroir, uh, whatever. Uh, but it, that really drew my attention to the fact that cuisine is a lot about talking. And so that's what I uh, tried to look at in my research, how people talk about cuisine. And uh, bringing up the water issue is actually really funny. And we'll, we'll come back, I think, over the course of um, this conversation to the really striking resonances that a lot of the work in this book has with contemporary ideas, contemporary debates about <clears throat> cuisine and how to think about it and what it represents. But there was just, um, for other reasons, I was just reading um, the first issue of this new magazine about food that just came out called Lucky Peach. I don't know if you've seen it. Okay, I'll, I'll send you the, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just send it to you after this, but it's a, it's a magazine that was launched by um, the head chef of Momofuku in New York, and the entire first issue is devoted to ramen, which is why I thought of this. It's, it's this kind of mythologizing of ramen culture and the you know different local cultures of ramen in Japan and really prioritize the water and how much ramen chefs obsess about water and the quality of water. There are chefs who are really obsess about water. There are chefs that go in, uh, in Kyoto. Uh, I don't know if they're noodle chefs, chefs or not, but they, they claim to go every morning to... Uh, certain temples and draw their water and use that as the basis of their soup stock. But one wonders how much water they would need and, and how, how tedious that would be to go every morning. But that's the claim. Uh, anyway. So people do uh, appreciate the water and, and go at length, talk at length about, about, the, about something as fundamental as water. That's right. And I think as um, you go on to show in the book, and I think this is a great um, chance for us to sort of jump into this, um, one of the things I think the book shows really convincingly is that when we're talking about the history of cuisine and food in Japan and writings about cuisine and food, so much of it is about the ritual importance, both in in the performative importance of these objects and these words and these um, recipes that, you know, when, when you actually, I think, help us start to think about something like why water and your discussion about the you know, the purity of water and the nature of water may be so important to a way of thinking about cuisine in which the kind of ritual and performative aspects of it are really just as important, if not in many cases, as we'll go on to talk about more so than what you're actually putting in your body. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of the ritual cuisines weren't even eaten at all. Uh, so that that's, uh, tells you that it's it's much more about much more than just about eating. It's about the whole performance of it, uh, the whole ritual context of it. Uh, that, that's what really struck me when I started doing research. Is these elaborately prepared dishes, uh, even whole banquets that were never eaten. Beautiful works of art. People later made beautiful uh, hanging uh, scroll, scrolls. Uh, hand scrolls of these, uh, gorgeous, uh, but uh, none of the food was eaten. So it must have had tremendous ritual value. It must have had other meanings besides just uh, the gustatory ones, the consuming ones. Right. Uh, so. That's right. Now, so this is 
like I said, a great way to start getting right into the book itself, which is, um, as I mentioned, but I just want to emphasize, um, really fun, really clearly written, and just a really great resource, I think, for all kinds of scholars who are interested in not just um, history of cuisine and history of Japan, but really um, history of science, history of medicine, history of culture. Um, so, But before you actually get into the meat of the book, no pun intended, um, where you, you talk a lot about things well, that... Well, you don't need back then anyway. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so... Uh, where you know a lot of the material was not eaten, you really bookend um, that material with um, an introductory and concluding um, example, one of each of things that are very widely eaten today, and that's at the end, the California roll is what we end with, but we begin this story, or you begin this story um, with sukiyaki, right? And you, br you bring us in by taking us into um, your experience um, going through the binders of recipes and clippings that your grandfather kept, mostly in the 50s and 60s, um, one, one dish of which was uh, sukiyaki, right? So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about um, what it was like to go through these uh, collections of clippings kept by your family as a way to, and, and really how that spoke to the work that you did um, in the rest of the project, which seems, you know, on the surface to be completely different from 1950s, 1960s American clippings, but actually winds up being very related. Well, the thing is, I, I guess uh, when I initially started this project, I was, as a historian, looking for sources. And we have marvelous collections of cookbooks from medieval times and early modern times. But the thing is, how does one use that as a historical source? What do you what do you take from that? Uh, how can you interpret that, especially if they're just little vague recipes, you know, uh, providing say the sauce for a certain dish or how, the ingredients for a certain soup, and they don't even tell you everything because they assume a lot of knowledge because a lot of these are written for professionals. And and how are they composed? Uh, often there's no order. It's just one after another. You'll find a soup recipe next to a recipe for some kind of uh, uh, elaborate preparation with a lobster. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be much uh, sense to it overall. And uh, I was thinking about how to talk about these, how to how to uh, put these into some kind of story. And then I came across my uh, grandfather's albums, and he had lived in Japan in the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, before he died. He had some very close friends there. And uh, I thought, well, maybe he has some Japanese food recipes and these binders. And these binders are, uh, you know, kind of thing you would buy at an ordinary stationery store with pieces of paper. And then he would clip out recipes that he'd like, and he'd put them in these binders seemingly randomly. And as I started flipping through them, I realized that there is some kind of a logic to it. There's some kind of an order to it. Meat dishes are, are in, in one area and uh, soups are in another Italian. You get to begin to understand the person's preferences. He's not eating a lot of uh, health food. And in that day and age, 1960s, I, most people, I think, weren't concerned about that so much. And they weren't concerned about counting calories. Of course, you're going to use a heavy cream and not milk or skim milk or something like that. So the recipes are very, very rich, and you often don't see that, see that today. Uh, but there's also some kind of logic to it. And the question that came to my mind is, did he actually prepare these? And I asked my mother about that, and she said, yeah, I guess he prepared some of them, but not all of them, which made me realize that a lot of what's in cookbooks uh, is there for another purpose besides preparation. 
it's uh, you can read this as a sort of literature. Uh, in his case, perhaps it's a type of biography. It tells you his likes and his dislikes, his sources of information. Uh, but in the case of other cookbook authors, it, it shows you what they prioritize, what's what's important to them, and how they organize information, and what they leave out too. So it gave me a, a, an interesting uh, key to try to unlock these sources and try to m- make sense of them. Otherwise, they're just a list of recipes. So uh, I, and I use that in the book as a way to introduce people to these types of sources because it's hard to know what to make of them initially. Besides all the arcane vocabulary for cooking various dishes, how do you how do you approach these uh, works, these cookbooks as historical uh, sources? Absolutely. And, and um, I'd actually really like to get back to that in a little while. So keep that in mind, because I think that's, um, especially for those of us who are um, historians or sort of working on um, East Asian studies or really um, any kind of cultural history, history anywhere, um, these kinds of, or it's not unusual to come across these kinds of historical sources that just flummox you as a historian, especially since we're, we're taught to look for the contextual clues, right? You want to know who wrote the, wrote the text, where was it found, where was it written? All these things we train our students to think about as, you know, first line of defense when dealing with any kind of primary source, and yet in our actual practice, often um, the most interesting sources don't give us an obvious way of asking and answering those questions. So, Exactly. And in the case of these cookbooks, we don't know very much about the authors, Maybe we know a name, maybe we know a date of composition or publication, but beyond that, it's, it's not, it's, uh, there's not much that we know about them. But they can still be very important sources, but we just can't rely upon the author's biography. Maybe that's good. Maybe then if, if we were trying to pin that to a specific individual, it might limit us a little bit. Exactly. I mean, I think it really, um, at least as evidenced in this book, the nature of these sources seemed to really... Um, spark a, a very imaginative way of, of drawing a story out of these sources in a way that may not have been possible if, you know, all of the little I's were dotted and T's were crossed or whatever the pre-modern Japanese equivalent of that would have been. <laughs> but before, so to get into those though, um, you, you start off the book and you sort of use this example of your grandfather's binders of recipes and the experience of going through them and thinking through what they might have meant for him and now for you as a historian, um, and then maybe more broadly in the context of culinary history, um, as a way of trying to look at the problem of um, the pre-modern history of Japanese cuisine, mm-hmm. right? And, and you start us off by reminding us that um, what we think of as a Japanese cuisine is really only a very modern, maybe late 19th century um, concept that, that can't really be profitably read back into early modern sources. And so you leave us with this question, or you begin us with this question, and um, the question, and I'll, I'll quote here, if Japanese cuisine is modern, does that mean that pre-modern Japan um, did not have a cuisine? And so can you talk a little bit about how you began to answer that question and sort of what... Um, how thinking through that question maybe um, takes us into the the materials that you started looking at. So, how did you start to try to answer that question? Right, that's a, that's a very big question because um, when we talk about Japanese cuisine, it is a very modern thing, and it's tied to nationalism. Even the words for Japanese cuisine, washoku or nihon yori, 
Uh, they're products of the late 19th century when Japan is uh, trying to renegotiate its unequal trade treaties with the West, trying to uh, compete with Western powers, going to war with China, going to war with Russia. Uh, so it's very much product of nationalism uh, and in that period. And indeed, a lot of the recent research on Japanese cuisine, I'm thinking specifically of Katarzyna Tsorka's book on Japanese cuisine, uh, puts forth that definition that Japanese cuisine is something that's wholly modern. And I think you could make similar arguments about cuisine in France and cuisine in Italy. Uh, these are products of, of the late 19th, 20th century, which makes things difficult for an early modern historian because if we're pegging cuisine to nationalism, industrialization, all these isms that we associate with the 19th and 20th century, then what does that leave us for uh, early modern times? Well, if we uh, think about that as an absence of what's lacking, uh, I, I think that's rather disappointing. And I think it also ignores the fact that these cuisines didn't emerge from a black hole. They didn't come out of nothing. There was something there. So I began to pursue that. Well, what, what, how do we talk about cuisine in the absence of nationalism, uh, in the absence of modernity? And I think, well, uh, the way to do that is to not look uh, for similar things. There's not going to be a national cuisine in a period of disunity, for example. Uh, rather, there might be local cuisines. Well, okay, we start looking at those, and we find out actually, in the case of Japan, that local cuisines really originate in the late 19th century, too. So Kyoto cuisine coalesced uh, in the late 19th century, around the time that this uh, Japanese cuisine uh, coalesced. So that's a little bit problematic, too. Uh, so you look at, okay, other types of genres of cooking, uh, say temple food, Japanese monastic cooking, that certainly inspired Japanese cuisine. Well, I, and I think so. There's a lot of techniques that came out of that. But I think the real uh, moment for me, was looking at the vast culture, uh, uh, vast literature on cuisine that's created in the early modern period. I thought, what are these people doing if there's no cuisine? How come they're writing about it so much? Uh, so what are they saying? Are they longing for a national cuisine? No, far from it. They're, they're, they're saying all sorts of things about cuisine that are very interesting. They're tying cuisine to uh, religion. They're tying uh, cuisine to social status, certainly. Uh, they're tying cuisine cuisine to all these very imaginative ways. So if we think about cuisine in early modern Japan, certainly it's not pegged to nationalism. It's pegged to a, a wonderful, imaginative uh, realm of fantasy. And that's how I get the title of the book, Food and Fantasy in Early Modern Japan. I think that's what sums up cuisine. You have the basic ingredients for food, and then you have this marvelous uh, intellectual um, context that is applied to the food and allows people to think about it in so many very imaginative, creative ways. And some of these get worked into modern Japanese cuisine. Some of them fall by the wayside, unfortunately. Great. Thank you. Um, and, and these are actually um, questions and problems that are very revel uh, relevant and will be very resonant with um, those of us who study pre-modern uh, medicine. Um, in China, because you, you get the same, or in Japan, or, you know, you get the same sorts of questions of, uh, or the same assertions that there was no 
Chinese medicine, right, until 1950s or so. But then, okay, so those of us who are early modernists, then what are we looking at? What we're trying what to do? What are these people doing before exactly. So Exactly. So I think these are, um, these are questions that really translate across a lot of different disciplines. Okay, so this kind of question um, and this introduction sets up um, the study of what's going to be um, a, really an exploration of late medieval culinary texts. And for listeners who may not be um, familiar with these periods, you, you um, use 1400 to 1600, roughly, to kind of identify that. And then early modern published culinary books, which is a different kind of a genre, and we'll, and we'll get to that. And that's roughly 1600 to 1868. Um, you mentioned at one point that just in this latter category, there are, you say, I think more than 900 of these texts that are extant. Um, so you started earlier um, to talk with us a little bit about the challenges of using these kinds of historical texts and historical documents. Um, can you say a little bit about the challenges of both or the processes involved in both finding and identifying these texts and also um, some of the challenges um, specifically of using them to tell a story or to tell the particular story that you wanted to tell? Uh, first of all, you have to learn the vocabulary. Uh, it's all those words for fish, you know, who would have thought the Japanese would have so many kinds of, you know, and they're all different. So you have to learn all those. Uh, then there's a lot of technical vocabulary. These books, whether they're the manuscripts or the published writings, are, are written for people who have a degree of knowledge. So they use a sort of shorthand. So if you see something like 753, well, one wonders, what is that? Some kind of measurement for uh, sugar? No, actually, it describes a banquet in detail. It describes the trays that are used and the dishes that will be used. So you have to learn that initial vocabulary. For me, that, that was pretty tough initially. I had to ask a lot of people and look to a lot of sources just to figure out what was going on. In terms of, of the availability of these, uh, it's pretty good because Japanese scholars as a whole are very good about making sources available. Uh, and I think that that's often where, if I could just speak critically for a moment, that's often where their scholarship ends. But that's an enormous step to try to take handwritten manuscripts and then annotate them, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, create indexes for them. And they do such a wonderful, beautiful job. And they make all these wonderful sources available to us uh, that it's pretty not to just to, to, go, to look at them uh, more. And, and I, I thought, well, uh, I think more can be said about these these uh, works than already has been. So the, the sources are, are readily available. There's some archival sources, too, that I use in Japan. Uh, but most of the ones that I used are, are published now. So it makes it a little bit easier for the scholar. Um, but then again, you have to decide which ones are the ones that you want to focus on and which ones are the ones that uh, are, are less interesting for your project. Mm -hmm. Great. Some of them just, just jump right out at you. you know, like, they're just very rich in detail. So, for uh, example, which um, is there one in particular that you can recall immediately jumping out at you as, um, well, this is exciting and I really need to, to work this in? Well, uh, there is one archival source that was really interesting. There's a restaurant uh, called Lancamero in Kyoto. And I had a chance to go meet the owner of Mancamero. He's also the head of this uh, school of cuisine, uh, ceremonial cutting, in which they bring out a large table, small squat table, and then cut out a, cut a, a, cut a fish 
Uh, used to be also they would cut up things like crane, but those are on the endangered species list. You can't do that in Japan today. They bring out a fish and they cut it up and make it look uh, like a type of flower arrangement. I mean, something you never see in Japan today because it's a bit bizarre. I think most people would be taken aback by it. But he's the head of this school, this lineage, which traces itself back until, oh, the 1300s at least. And he has this restaurant. And uh, I was able to, to meet him. Uh, we went with another uh, restaurant tour there. And he said, well, you want to see some of the documents? And I said, well, sure. And he brought out box after box of documents. And some of these are just spectacular. He was in a large room at one time and a different occasion when I met with him. And he just rolled out this well, must have been 30, 40 foot long scroll uh, depicting this banquet that the emperor had gone to in 1626. It was wow. just beautifully illustrated. And he said, you need to just walk down and point out some of the dishes that, that were uh, made at that occasion. So he had some, some marvelous treasures. And I knew immediately I wanted to use some of these. There are other things, too, that I, I wasn't able to use. He had uh, wonderful uh, knives. Some of these are like the size of samurai swords, the ones that are used to, uh, for cutting fish. Um, so he, he, he introduced a lot of wonderful sources to me. And in terms of published writings, uh, there's this great work on tea ceremony, tea ceremony cuisine, and so much more uh, by this late 17th century tea teacher. Uh, it says it's a work about, the title is about uh, tea cuisine, but actually it's about how to entertain a shogun or a powerful war, warlord at your house. And I looked at that and I thought, my gosh, they're going to create this banquet and it takes you two years to plan it? Uh, this is very interesting. So I'm reading that in very great detail. And I can tell you as a reader, um, reading about that was particularly exciting too. And I'm, I, I have it on my little plan to ask you about that specifically later to talk about because that, that document about how to entertain the Shogun, it wasn't just, you know, get the time right, make sure he's available. It's like build this extra wing onto your house, right? right? And here's how you do it. Um, but this is really great stuff. Now, you use these um, sources not just um, as a way of doing what I think the book does do, which is um, just give us a glimpse into these fascinating texts and provide um, some really useful translations of some very difficult kinds of documents that a lot of us are not necessarily going to um, know of the existence of, let alone be able to work with or um, get a flavor of again, no pun intended anyway, um, but you use this um, to set up this larger or to explore this larger thesis of the book, which, which is that cuisine in early modern Japan <clears throat> provided the means for fantasizing with food. So specifically, right, and, and I, as a reader, it um, struck me that that preposition was very important, right? It's not just fantasizing about food, but fantasizing with food. Um, so that, I think, is going to come up. It certainly structures the rest of the book, and that'll come up, I think, in, in um, the rest of our conversation as well. Um, so after we, you start out uh, by introducing the book, um, and the first chapter really gets into um, some of your experience thinking through this problem, right? How do you get to get from this question of what was there in pre-modern Japan, if not Japanese cuisine, to um, cuisine as a way of fantasizing with food. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you've told us about, which is your, your interviews um, with these restaurateurs and chefs in Kyoto in the summer of 2000? Um, 
but also then um, raise, uh, I think, a very telling example that really epitomizes this idea of early modern Japanese cuisine as being about fantasizing with food. And that's this example of um, sort of not quite the emperor's new breakfast, but the emperor's uneaten breakfast, right, right. right? Can you tell listeners or can you talk a little bit about this um, uneaten breakfast of these rice balls um, for listeners who may not um, have had a chance to read the book yet? This is a fascinating little case study. Right. Well, there's a, a very famous sweet maker in Kyoto called Haobata Doki. And they're still in operation, and actually, they've been in operation since the early 15th century. And uh, they make uh, mochi, which are rice cakes. Uh, that's traditionally their occupation, but today they make all sorts of sweets. They're, they're very famous for sweets that are served around the New Year's time. Uh, but Kawabatsudoki was a townsman. He lived near the Imperial Palace in the 1500s. And he observed that the emperor was really uh, impoverished in the 1500s. This is a time of civil war in Japan, and uh, the emperor had lost. The emperor and the aristocrats lost a lot of estates. Uh, they're uh, really living in a corner of the palace, and uh, they rely upon townsmen to get by. Uh, and Kawabatsudoki saw this opportunity to perhaps ingratiate himself with the court, but also to, to serve uh, the emperor. We, he took pity on, actually. And uh, he started bringing him breakfast every morning. And what did he bring? He brought him rice cakes, and they were covered with uh, red bean paste without any sweetener. And these were quite large. They were about the size of softballs. And he would bring them every morning to the emperor. And when I think about how impoverished the emperor was, there's a later picture scroll uh, that's depicted in my book, which shows the imperial palace in this time period when Kabatadoki starts bringing his food, this breakfast every morning. And the palace is dilapidated. It's got holes in the roof. Uh, There's a sign out front. And you can almost just read the sign. And actually, there's a copy. There's an original sign in the Kabata family archives. Uh, and what the sign says in this picture scroll in front of the Imperial Palace, it says, don't dump your garbage here. And what's going on in, in the scene is there's samurai going into the Imperial Palace and stealing food. They have all these rice balls and things that they're, they're running away with. So obviously that's made us, makes us feel sympathetic to the emperor. Kawabatsudoki felt that way. And he began to bring him his breakfast every morning. Uh, probably he ate it in that initial period. He needed it. This is continued into the 17th century, but by that time, uh, the imperial finances are a little bit more improved. They have the backing of the new shogunate, they're paying their salaries. So the uh, whole process of this breakfast becomes a ritual. The emperor, instead of consuming it, uh, he receives it every morning. Kawabatadoki brings it to him in a special uh, box actually, it's three boxes in one, kind of like one of those Russian dolls. And inside there's beautiful Chinese chest, and there's an outer box and one beyond that. He goes there every morning. There's a special gate that he passes through next to the central gate and brings the emperor his breakfast. And the question I always had is, well, uh, what do you do with this food if you're not eating it? And I asked the current head of about the household, and they. they didn't really know what they did with it. Probably gave it away to somebody else. Uh, but it shows uh, 
the, the importance of this ritual. Even when the food itself was no longer consumed, this ritual continued. It, it affirmed Kaabatazdoki's relationship with the emperor. It also affirmed the emperor's uh, imperial majesty, perhaps close to divinity, because after all, when you give food to deities, they don't eat them. You know, if you offer food up in a shrine, of course, somebody might steal it, but the deities don't eat them. Interestingly enough, though, one Shinto priest told me that deities do drink the sake because they offer a little uh, cups of sake in the morning to the deities, and by the afternoon it's gone. So they always have to keep refilling it. But the emperor, in this context and in other contexts, often he didn't eat in front of people. He would receive the food, he would pick up a little fan or some chopsticks, and he would hit the table with a fan or chopsticks, and the food would be removed, just as if he was a deity incarnate. Uh, so uh, it's it's an interesting vignette. It's an interesting story about uh, Kaobatha Doki family and their long history serving the court. And then, of course, they also sell sweets to commoners and, and nobility later on, tea sweets. <clears throat> uh, but also it shows you how food is an object of fantasy. Food can be something so much more than just its, uh, its, its components. And indeed, these... These, these rice balls that the uh, emperor is being brought every morning are rather tasteless. I mean, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't taste like much. They'd be really hard to, and awkward to eat. So it's no wonder that he would want to give them up and eat something else when he could. But I think they probably initially in the 1500s when he was down on his luck and, and, and impoverished, he really needed them to sustain himself. And I think, excuse me, it's not only an interesting vignette, but this story really shows the power of um, using food, not just to understand the history of cuisine, but really food as a way of understanding larger social and cultural transformations. So these rice balls become a way of understanding the changing fortunes of the the emperor and the sort of the status of the emperor. So... In the close proximity of the emperor, we often don't think about this, but in the medieval period, there was a real close proximity between the emperor and ordinary people in Kyoto, and how uh, this this shows that relationship very well. And there's another aspect to it that's a little bit darker. Uh, during World War II, this episode was used in um, textbooks to show popular loyalty to the emperor. Wow. Yeah, all sorts of facets to this story. How about the Doki? Wow. Well, this, I think this also raises this issue very concretely of food and ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of using or thinking about food in medieval and early modern Japan as a way of thinking through ritual and performance, which actually is a nice lead in, into the next chapter where you really look at um, the history of these um, cutting ceremonies and knife ceremonies in, I think, the sort of uh, 17th century. Is that right? This... Actually, they go back much further. Than okay, yeah. great. Okay, so it ranges, the chapter itself ranges from um, this, this really early history of cutting ceremonies all the way to the founding of Benihana Steakhouses in the 1960s, right? So it's this huge range, um, but in the middle it focuses on this group of, um, of masters, really, called the Hochonin. Am I getting that right? Um, so these are people for our listeners who worked for the ruling military and aristocratic elite. Um, they flourished in the 15th and 16th centuries, and they were really the only professional chefs until the appearance of food stalls and restaurants in the late 17th century, um, if that's right. Okay. 
So can you say a little bit about, or talk as much as you want actually about um, what these knife ceremonies were um, and describe one perhaps for one of our listeners, for our listeners? Well, uh, you can see these occasionally in Japan today. Uh, the, the restaurant Mankamero in Kyoto, they uh, do these occasionally as ceremonies at various shrines uh, or at special events. And what you would see if you were attending one of these events is you would see uh, a very large squat table. Imagine a large coffee table. And on the table would be a fish, large fish, say two or three feet long. Uh, people would come out, chef and his assistants come out in ceremonial court dress. They have the long court hats, the long uh, flowing billowy pants, the hakama, uh, beautifully dressed. And they sit uh, in front of this uh actually behind it, uh, so that they face out towards the audience. They sit in front of this uh, table, and then they gradually uh, prepare themselves uh, to cut up the fish. And the, the key here is they're not allowed to touch the fish. They have a long knife, they have long metal chopsticks, and they use those to manipulate the fish. And they just don't cut up sashimi or something like that. Actually, they're trying to create a sculpture. And there are many different types of these sculptures, uh, depending on the types of fish. Dozens and dozens of them. And so they create a sculpture using food. And uh, it's, it's very dramatic to watch. It's like a type of pantomime or seated dance. There are moments at the beginning where the uh, Hochonin, the, the carver, will stand up. And Hochonin, by the way, literally means person of the knife. The person of the knife will stand up. Uh, will rub the knife or hit the knife rather with the metal chopsticks so there are these nice uh, moments of sound that get your attention and then transform this fish into a beautiful uh, display. So one occasion that comes to mind that I saw was uh, a transformation of a fish into these two sacred rocks. There's a place off the shore of Japan where there are these two rocks and they're tied together with a sacred rope and this chef had created this display using the fish. It was quite, quite remarkable. Uh, but this was a performing art in the medieval period. This was something that would be a banquet entertainment. You might have a juggler, you might have a musician, and then you'd have the chef come out and show their skill with carving. Uh, don't tend to see it too much today because it's not as popular as tea ceremony or something like that, but amateurs did study it at certain moments in its history. Right. That's a, that's a good summary of it. It's it's remarkable, uh, remarkable art form, and it shows you because the food again was not eaten that the food had tremendous symbolic value. And if when I started researching this uh, ritual, I discovered that actually it has a very deep Buddhist meaning, because in Buddhism, uh, as you know, uh, taking life is bad karma. If you take life, then you're going to shorten your own life. Not to mention the fish that you killed, but uh, you're going to be shorten your own life. Maybe if you kill a lot of fish, you'll be reborn as a fish in the next life. So there's a lot of bad karma in cooking. And this uh, ceremony, as it was understood in medieval times and early modern times, is a way for the chef to release the spirit of the fish uh, into uh, a pure land, into a place where it could be born into a paradise rather than suffer a rebirth in something else. And then through that merit, uh, 
actually, that would be a prayer for longevity, not just for the chef, but for the other people uh, in attendance, the, uh, his, his ultimate, uh, his, his audience, his uh, the people at the banquet. But had a very interesting religious uh, meaning to it, and it's described in great detail, down to the length of the table, the length of the knife, uh, the meaning of the chopsticks. It's all related to passages in the Lotus Sutra. Very esoteric stuff. Uh, interesting to read. And interesting to think about when we think about something like Benihana today. You go there, we might think that that's a modern version of this, but actually that's something invented by an American, American stock car driver. Uh, who came up with this uh, performance where you sit and watch a volcano made of onions or uh, your end of a shrimp, the shrimp tail gets thrown into your Mai Tai or something like that. It's completely different. That's so there's a historical connection that I'm aware of between those two. That's right. And it's actually quite striking because you provide um, some diagrams of the table and the um, some images of this in, in the book. And I think there's actually a photograph of um, this one particular um, knife or cutting ceremony with the two rocks and the rope. So readers can actually take a look at that in the book and, and see it's a really striking image. But the table is really a kind of stage, right? I mean, it, the different sections of the table have special names. And I mean, it, <clears throat> and um, I think if I'm recalling correctly, at one point you mentioned that reading some of these descriptions of, um, especially with Buddhist resonance of actually saving the carp or saving the, the fowl, this actually is a great illustration of the kind of terminological difficulty, right? Because when you read, you know, and then save the carp right. as a historian, well, what is it with save the carp? What does that mean? Are they putting it away for later? Are they doing it? No. And then you go into this great description of, um, of these more ritual sort of Buddhist resonances of this. I think it's, it's, um, totally um, engaging stuff. Yeah, saved in the sense of the religious save. Exactly, exactly. But as an early modernist, right, you just have this text to save the carp. That could mean anything, right? So it's. And that's a moment when the carp is just before it's, it's thrown on the table. Actually, the chef will pick it up with a knife and chopsticks and then drop it. You might think, oh, what's happened there? But actually, that, was, that moment had a, has a tremendous religious meaning because the spirit is part of it. It's gone now. You're, you're free to do what you want to with the body. That's right. Wow. Now, this is, in addition to taking us through these, um, uh, or one context um, of the ritualized use of cuisine and food, this is the first chapter that really takes us into detailed translations of some of these texts. And you've talked a little bit about the, you know, the particular nature of these texts and how, um, in some ways, very difficult they are to, to use. Now, the book itself contains... Um, the complete, I think, translation of one of the cookbooks that you used in the back is an appendix. But are you planning any, in the future, any um, fuller translations of any of these individual cookbooks? Or do you think you'll leave that for somebody else <laughs> to work I'm on? That. I, I, I suppose I could. Um, I think it really has to do with how my work as a scholar is evaluated. And I think it's probably... Yeah can relate with this, and maybe a lot of listeners can relate with this, that translation is viewed in a history department as not a very engaging intellectual act, That's despite right. the fact that it has tremendous challenges. That's right. One wonders about the background of people making this evaluation. You know, uh, in some instances, you don't have to translate anything, depending on the sources that you're using. But in pre-modern Japan, you have to. Um, but 
in terms of translation, I've, I've done some of it, and I and I uh, I do view it as very important and worthwhile. And uh, one of my ambitions would be to translate more, uh, make more sources available, because as a teacher. You know, it's so difficult for students to find good sources to write about what they want to in, for pre-modern Japan. So my, my hope would be that someday that there would be more things available to them so they could write about uh, whatever they like, or subject they like, research on it. Uh, but as, as far as translating cookbooks, I'm not sure. My latest study is on tobacco, and there's a marvelous book on tobacco that I'm translating right now. I'm not sure what I'll do with that translation. Perhaps Okay, and so I'll also ask you about that in a little bit, um, the tobacco project. Um, but before we get to that, <clears throat> so the book um, really moves wonderfully from this chapter to a next chapter, which also looks at, in detail at the work um, and the works of and works by these Hochonin, but looks at it in a very different context. So this is a chapter where you talk in detail about um, ceremonial banquets, right? And this is really just a wonderfully evocative description of um, the use of food um, in, in many ways that have nothing to do with consumption, right? From food miming, the sort of artful non-consumption of edible snacks. I think my favorite here um, was a, a long description, and for listeners, this is on 77 to 78, of um, how to eat a wing serving of quail meat that ends with this performance of sort of picking up the flower garnish from the quail meat and sniffing it and sort of performing this comment of how wonderful it smells and then putting it in your pocket. Um, so it's just, this, it's full of great stuff in this chapter. But can you um, perhaps um, say a little bit for our listeners about what one of these ceremonial banquets involved? To talk a little bit about these banquets for them? Sure. At a typical Japanese banquet uh, for the elite in this period, there'd be multiple trays of food. You have a main tray, and then you have a tray to the left and a tray to the right, and sometimes additional trays. Sometimes you'd have anywhere between three, five, seven, and beyond these numbers of trays. Now, uh, not all the food, depending on the context, not all the food would be meant to be eaten. There'd be cold soups that you wouldn't want to touch, and there'd be also edible displays. And these edible displays are called mori, uh, something mori. For example, there's one called Ebi no Funamori, which means lobster in the shape of a boat, or lobster served as a boat. And what this is, is the chef will take a lobster and twist it and bend it around so to try to make a mast of the ship, turn it into a little uh, model of a boat. And this is very auspicious. This is something that you'd only serve aristocrats. Did you actually eat it? Well, perhaps you could. But a lot of times it wasn't eaten. If, if they saw it on the banquet, people would know uh, either through some certain visual cues or from past experience that this is not something you've touched. Now, in the case of this hamori dish, this quail, that sometimes was eaten and sometimes it was not. I included those directions that you mentioned about how to eat them. But it's very complicated. You know, if you want to eat that dish, what it is, is you take a bird and before cooking it, you remove the wings. Uh, feathered wings. Then you cook the bird and you reattach the wings and you pose it so that it looks like it's going to fly away. That's, so hamori means wing servant. Uh, so if one were to eat this dish, it's very complicated. You have to treat it like a work of art. You have to take it off the tray. You have to bow to it, inspect it. 
as you said, look at those little flowers, tuck them away, and then make some nice comment about it. And then you could dig in and eat it. For a lot of people, I think that was just too tedious. And if you're at a banquet where you have multiple trays of food and it's already prepared for you, you just may not bother. And we also learned from records that a lot of this food was kept for a couple of days. So a hamori dish, for example, uh, according to one chef I spoke with, could be kept around for about a week. And after a week, you don't want to eat that anyways. It starts to smell right. So it shows you had great decorative value, but you know, not something you'd want to, to nosh on. Uh, so there are many of these types of dishes, and they were very important to medieval cuisine especially, because they would evoke all sorts of different meanings for the consumer. Um, some of these things would speak to the martial virtues of the samurai. Others, uh, people get to imagine, imagine themselves in a place of honor. They're being served things that deities are served. Of course, they don't touch them, just like deities don't eat. Uh, just don't eat in front of people. So uh, it's interesting to me that the, the, in looking at cookbooks, what we find is the most attention is given to these ceremonial foods that are never consumed, which shows you the importance of fantasy and its connection with food if we try to define cuisine in early modern or medieval and early modern Japan. Right. And, and and if I'm remembering correctly, in the course of these ceremonial banquets, it's not just these multiple trays and multiple servings of food, but this is preceded by sort of a, a multiple courses, in effect, of snacks and sort of rounds of drinking, right? And then afterwards, there'd be lots of snacks as well. So this is a, a very elaborate kind of performative um, act and a sort of set of rituals, many of which seem to involve food that's not meant to be consumed, but there's an art to the non-consumption of it still, right? Certainly. That's yeah, great. Banquets start with a drinking ceremony. There are a lot of these snacks that are served uh, that have evocative meanings that are not consumed. Uh, then you move into this tray banquet, and then afterwards things relax a little bit and you eat other things. Uh, so there's three three stages to this, the initial drinking and not eating, but eating a little bit. And after that, people have had quite a bit to drink. So during the main banquet, the tray banquet, people don't drink alcohol anymore. Right. But then afterwards, you relax a little bit, and people who want to eat more can, and then, then the drinks return. So I think typically when people drink alcohol, they get a little hungry. Mm -hmm. And so they have these uh, various types of lunch experiments to, to consume while they walk theater and chat and, and these banquets you know could start oh four o'clock in the afternoon and go all night long sometimes wow i mean and for um for listeners who are with us right now this um, another thing that the book includes um, in this particular chapter are lots of great diagrams of what some of these food trays actually looked like and what the contents were and ways of organizing it and then also some reproductions of images of these trays um, so it's, it's, I think, also a great resource for those of us who are interested in visual culture um, and sort of diagrammatic culture and diagrammatic ways of thinking, which is, I think, um, an approach that is really rising in a lot of historical fields right now. So that's particularly... Yeah, um, it's, uh, there's a set pattern for these banquets. You always find, say, the rice on the left side and the soup on the right side of the main tray. Uh, so that's pretty consistent. Then you have certain other things that are on these trays. So it's very easy to diagram them out. And some sources do that from medieval times. Yeah. 
Now, another thing that this um, chapter really does is to sort of lead us into the next part of the book. And I don't, I don't want to keep you too long, but I think this is worth spending a little time on because um, it's so fascinating. This chapter really um, starts talking about the eventual popularization of this um, Hochonin craft into a field of cookbooks and culinary books that were more widely available. And this is something that later chapters will actually start talking about. So as a way of getting there, the next part of the book introduces um, really a fascinating case study of a source called um, The Barbarian's Cookbook. Right. Now, this is a cookbook that um, illustrates the influence of Iberian cuisine and Ab Iberian foodways um, on Japanese um, or the, the cuisine of early modern Japan or the food of early modern Japan, however we want to talk about that in this period, um, including uh, a sort of a really nice description of the problems of talking about the early history of tempura, right? Which I think is really interesting. And I'll ask you to talk a little bit about this because you do a great job of both engaging with the fascination that we all have with trying to pinpoint the origins of things while at the same time showing the complexity and the ultimate um, problems with trying to approach something like this in a way that takes origins as the goal, right? Sort of the problem of looking at origins. Um, so can you talk maybe a little bit about this particular source, this cookbook, and what it can um, tell us about cuisine in early modern Japan? Uh, this chapter bridges the manuscript culture of the medieval times with the print culture of the early modern period. And that, that's an issue that I've also interested in my previous research and the transition between manuscript culture and print culture. Uh, the cookbooks that describe the cutting ceremonies and the banquet cuisine that we just talked about, those are mostly manuscripts. Those are maintained by those hochonin and passed down to disciples. But in the early modern period, thanks to the rise of the printing industry in Japan, then these types of works and other types of works are created for a more popular audience. Anyone who could afford them could buy them. Or there's wonderful lending libraries, too. In the period, people could rent the book and copy it out if it so shows. Uh, so to try to talk about this transition from manuscript culture to print culture, I introduced this text called the Southern Barbarians Cookbook, or I also called the Barbarians Cookbook. And Southern Barbarians is a word that was applied to people outside of Japan, mostly, uh, well, non-Asians, could be also sometimes uh, people from Southeast Asia, but mostly Westerners. And in this period, it applied to the Portuguese and the Spanish. Probably uh, the influence that's most strong in this cookbook is Portuguese influence on Japanese cuisine. So the cookbook itself is is, is fascinating, but it also serves as a bridge in, in the manuscript as I'm talking about the uh, history of culinary writings. Uh, the book has a number of different recipes. It has two different parts. This Barbarian's Cookbook. First part deals with meat recipes. Excuse me, uh, with sweet recipes, confectionery. Uh, because Portuguese brought wonderful sugar from China, and they were very interested in, in uh, uh, confectionery. They were great masters of confectionery. And a lot of these things, too, that they created were very useful if you're taking a long journey on board ship to preserve things in sugar. So the first part of the book deals with confectionery, and the second part deals with uh, meat dishes, which were very rare in Japan in this period. Most people didn't eat uh, beef, and didn't even eat eggs or chicken. And so this book, 
this cookbook, which was a manuscript, it was never published, uh, I think shows the influence of Iberians in popularizing these types of foods, egg dishes, confectionery dishes, uh, meat dishes to the Japanese. It also uh, has some hints to the early history of tempura. Tempura, as, as listeners will know, is that wonderful fry dish that we get at Japanese restaurants. It's almost synonymous with Japanese cuisine besides sushi and sashimi, tempura, fried shrimp, fried vegetables. Uh, you have a little wonderful dipping sauce. There's a chicken dish that has the word temporari in it. Um, and there's lots of debate among scholars about what the meaning of, of tempura means in Japan. What, what, what does the word originally mean? What language did it come from? Uh, there's no exact recipe for tempura, but instead we find a recipe for an early fish dish. And what, I can't remember the, the type of fish that was used, maybe it wasn't specified, but this fish was fried in pig lard and then served in a broth. And that seems to be the early origins of, of tempura. Later on, uh, people get the idea of, of just serving this outside the broth, and then you can dip it into the broth later, and that, not just uh, frying up fish, but frying up some vegetables and things like that. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting story in itself, and it also shows you the profound influence of, of Portuguese uh, food ways on Japanese cuisine, especially in the sweets, which maybe listeners are not familiar with, but there's wonderful cakes, candies, and things like that. They're all taken from Portugal. A uh, very popular one today in Japan is Castera, which is kind of like a sponge cake, a very rich sponge cake. Uh, that probably orig- originates uh, in the, uh, I remember the exact words, but it's Castera might, might be Castilian cake. And then there's also these hard candies that are called Campeto. And the Portuguese word, if I remember correctly, is Confeto. So there are lots of words that were taken and, and, and cooking methods that are taken right from uh, Portuguese food works, which is it's just amazing. And what, what's more amazing is the fact that uh, why these Portuguese in Japan, they're in there to trade, they're also doing missionary work. Christianity becomes very popular, according to some estimates, by 1600, there are 30, 300,000 converts to Christianity. Wow. We could talk about what that means, you know, what, that, what conversion means in that period, but it speaks to the initial popularity of it. But Within a few decades, it's, it's gone, practically. It's practically eliminated. Christianity is, is wiped out in Japan. Yet, the influence on uh, Japanese food waste by Portugal endures and becomes very popular. So that by the 1620s, 1630s, you serve the Emperor Castera, and you can buy it in stores, and people make a living selling Castera and other types of treats Right. And what's so fascinating about this, too, for those of us interested in history of technology, is that it's not, at least um, from reading this, it, it um, seems to me it's not simply a matter of, oh, these Portuguese are making this great cake, let's make it too. The question of, well, when there aren't widespread, when there's not the widespread availability of ovens to do right. something like bake a cake, so how do you actually bake something like a cake when there is no enclosed oven space in which to do that. And there are these great descriptions in there of how to um, both how to construct and build an oven, but also how to kind of MacGyver up, uh, you know, <laughs> a sort of like Insta oven with two different heat sources. And um, <clears throat> if you don't happen to have one in order to bake this cake. So it's actually, um, I think, really fascinating on that um, on that end of things, too. 
So, okay. So this cookbook, as you said, forms a bridge into what the rest of the book um, talks about, which is the rise, um, given the, um, the important transformations in print culture in the early modern period, the rise of the availability of a more popular um, cookbook literature, a more popular culinary literature. Um, and that really, the, the next three chapters all deal with that um, and really go into examples of this very rich literature excuse me, um, and the kind of work that this literature was meant to do. Um, so I want to take us to perhaps the final two chapters, which are, which look at um, what you call um, not just sort of food and fantasy in culinary books, but also menus of the imagination, right? Okay. So these books um, described not only recipes for fictional dishes, um, descriptions of imaginary banquets, um, sort of amusing ways of talking about food and wittily name ingredients. Um, and this takes the form of both cookbooks and also recipe collections. So can you, can you talk for um, our listeners a little bit about this um, set of literature, the importance of it to understanding early modern um, cuisine in Japan, and um, how... Um, and how to think about these as sources for understanding cult of culinary history. And, and it is a literature, I think. You could read it as literature right. because it brings you places that you couldn't possibly go by yourself. Right. You could never, most readers could never in that period imagine actually attending a banquet with the shogun. Yet you read about it, you could read about it, you can imagine yourself there being the host perhaps for one of these banquets. Uh, so that first of those chapters deals with imaginary banquets. Banquets which would be too difficult for mere mortals to create, uh, especially given in this period there are sumptuary laws that dictate when certain foods can be consumed or, or consumed at all for most people. Commoners had to follow these dictates. Well, one wonders how strict they were enforced. There, there's that issue, but uh, certainly these laws are promulgated again and again and again, uh, which do speak to the limits for commoners for creating uh, certain types of dishes. But read one of these books and you can imagine yourself attending a, a fantastic uh, banquet, or you can imagine a banquet that's organized according to certain themes. Say a travel down into the provinces. There might be a banquet organized according to that. Or uh, attending a series of plays. You have a banquet organized according to that. I loved that, by the way. There's a, there's a description of a menu written like the program of a no performance uh, for our listeners. That's just, it's brilliant. It's just an amazing piece of literature as well as a, a way of understanding culinary history. But that, that's, that's meant to be read. You wouldn't want to eat some of those dishes right. that other crows <laughs> think about. Right. Uh, so that chapter deals with banquets and the next one deals with things on a smaller scale, little simple dishes that are given elaborate names. They're named after past tea masters. They're named after oh, great figures in history, named after geographical locations. And uh, it gives a, certain, a different level of meaning to just an ordinary uh, dish of, of, say, tofu with a little bit of sauce on it. We see this in Japanese sweets today. But most traditional Japanese sweets are just made out of rice flour, sugar, bean paste, some coloring. It'd be rather dull if they weren't given fantastic, romantic, uh, evocative, poetic names. So this this begins in the early modern period with the naming of different dishes, uh, confectionery dishes and otherwise. So even if you couldn't afford to attend a magic banquet, you could have a, you could take your simple dish of daikon and tofu 
and translate it into something grand, you know, evoke images of distant places or evoke uh, all sorts of things according to your liking. That's great. And uh, so for, um, I, I want to just remind our listeners that there is all, there's this a very wonderful description of the very elaborate process by which you would go about inviting the shogun to dinner at your house, right? Um, which, you know, involves everything from inviting a doctor over to make sure that the menu doesn't involve any um, food ingredients that um, are sort of Counterindic- or contraindicated, which, again, for those of us who work on or who are interested in the history of medicine, this has lots of resonance for understanding the history of medicine and food culture um, in China as well. Um, and another really fascinating um, bit of this that you bring up, in particular in the last chapter, or the last um, sort of substantive body chapter, the seventh chapter, is a wonderful culinary text that I think everyone who's interested in Chinese cultural history is going to want to know about, which is um, a culinary text that's modeled on um, this very famous Chinese text called, sometimes it's called the Classics of Mountains and Seas or the Classic of Mountains and Streams, the Shanghai Jing, um, which I was totally shocked to see in here and just completely tickled by. So can you talk a little bit about that text? Well, you the nature of that text? Think more about the text than I did. Well, what I recall from it is that it describes places and beings. Some of them are real and some of them are unreal, right? Right. And that's, that was the inspiration for uh, a chef to create the, this volume of cook uh, of recipes. And he, he did a sequel to it, too, where he lists all these different recipes. No apparent order, but, but they're wonderful, evocative recipes. Uh, they have such such interesting names, but if you look at the components, they're rather boring. So uh, one, like I think there's a one uh, recipe for a dish from Sendai, which is basically serving something with ice. You know, it's not so interesting. But when you think of Sendai, it's in the northern part of Japan. It's perhaps a little bit cooler up there, so you can understand the connection. Well, this author has listed uh, recipe after recipe in this vein. And you could read it and appreciate it and understand all the, the different uh, pathways that this cookbook could take you, pathways of the imagination. You wander down different parts of Japan's geography. Uh, you go back into the medieval past. You have a, a type of tempera that's supposed to evoke the warriors uh, of, of, classical, of the classical age. You have a dish that speaks about a medieval poet. You have another dish that's a very clever pun on uh, sardines that's supposed to evoke uh, a Buddhist sect. So all of these sorts of things that the, the readers in this period would have loved. Uh, this time period is one when readers love jokes, visual jokes, puns, and things like that. They love to puzzle things out. And you find that in other parts of the literature, uh, in, in woodblock prints, in the comic books of the, of the period, there are all these sorts of little, little in-gags so for scholars, it's hard to know what's so funny about them or what's so interesting about them. And I'm sure there are other jokes there that I just didn't have the context to understand, but there are some very funny ones I was able to puzzle out. So uh, two-volume uh, set of these recipes based on this Chinese classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, could allow someone to read it purely as literature, or you could take one of these simple recipes and perhaps bring some life to what would otherwise be a very ordinary meal. 
Sure. And it's, um, again, I, I would actually love to see a translation of that text in particular because I would assign it to all of my students and make them, I'm actually going to make all my students read that chapter anyway. So um, it just it's just really great stuff. Okay, so I don't, uh, we've kept you for um, a very long time and thank you so much for talking with us about this or talking with me about this. Um, I mean, we could easily talk for another couple of hours about this. The book is that rich and there's that much um, really wonderful material that you bring out. Well, thank you very much. Oh, no, absolutely my pleasure, sincerely. Um, so before we wrap up, though, is there anything about the book that we didn't get to talk about that you particularly want to um, point uh, listeners to or readers of the book to? Well, you know, uh, I think that uh, we so often associate Japanese cuisine today with tempura, but also with sushi, you know? Yeah. And we have wonderful misconceptions about sushi. At the student union in the University of Kansas, there's a food court, and there's a sign by the sushi stand. We have a sushi stand there. Uh, there's a sign by it that says, sushi is not just fish. To tell people, you know, to get away from the conception that sushi is raw fish, and somehow that's not very appealing for us Westerners, but if you serve them something else, maybe they'll like it. Anyway, we so closely associate Japanese cuisine with sushi today that I wanted to... Tell us, that's a rather histor- uh, recent phenomenon. Sushi, yes, existed uh, in medieval times, but it's not something you want to eat. It was a way of preserving the fish. You would uh, take a fish, you would gut it, you would salt it, you would t- take rice, cooked rice, and put it in the fish, and you'd bury it. You'd bury it for three months, maybe a year, and then you unearth it, and then you get rid of the rice because it's all gone bad, and then you have this gelatinous sushi that people would consume. And it's not surprising, it would appear on banquets, but not very much of it, because how much of that could you eat? So it wasn't very important to Japanese cuisine, I think, until more modern times. There are other dishes that are much more important. There are sliced fish dishes, but oftentimes those would be served as kind of salad. They would take uh, vinegar dressing and then serve fish with fruit and nuts and other things mixed in. That was a much more important fish dish than sushi. So I, I like readers who are interested in modern cuisine to pay attention to the differences and continuities between what they understand uh, Japanese cuisine today to be and what it was in medieval and early modern times. Sushi, I think, is a great example. Absolutely. And, and that example also... Um particularly when you talk about Kyoto cuisine and food in Kyoto in the book, I think um, you do a really great job of also demonstrating that one of the reasons why um, certain foodstuffs, including preserved fish, took the form that they did, had everything to do with geography and proximity or not to the water. And, you know, it brings up the importance of cultural geography, but also taking seriously the environment and the sort of local geography um, when we're looking at the history of um, cuisine or really any history of anything, right? That's something that Kyoto chefs reference today. You know, they say, well, we don't use a lot of fish because Kyoto's so far from the ocean. And they say, oh, it took, you know, more than a day in the early modern period to go from the ocean to Kyoto. Uh-huh. You think about it, you know, they can get their fish flown in from any part of the world instantly today. Right. This is part of the rhetoric, part of the discourse on Kyoto cuisine. And so it goes to show you that cuisine is a lot about talking, isn't it? That's right. 
<laughs> and and to sort of you know wrap up this um, yeah. this talking and again to sort of let you get on to your next research. Um, why don't you mentioned um, earlier that you were now working on tobacco? Is that your current project or next project? And if not, what are you working on now? What's your next um, project? I'm doing a uh, actually two different things. One of them is looking at uh, a student Japanese meal. Um, there's a wonderful book called Much, what's the name of that title now? Uh, Much Depends on Dinner, in which uh, a scholar takes apart the components of a modern Western meal, American meal. And I thought, well, you could do something very similar for, for Japan. So I'm, I'm writing that book about a typical Japanese meal. And of course, I'm going to get in trouble immediately when I try to say what's typical, what's traditional, that, you know, this whole. Uh, that's one project. The other project uh, looks at uh, culture of smoking in the early period as a consumer item and the rise of consumerism. And I might also tie in sugar and uh, what else, tea with that. And I'm finding so many wonderful sources just about tobacco right now that it's hard to, you know, I really want to explore those. And I'm not sure I'll have room for sugar and tea at this moment. But there are great, uh, there's this one comic uh, writer of comic fiction who writes about the, the magic of smoking and tells you all about how to tell, tell readers secrets about how to take a, take a puff of, of pipe smoke and, and transform it into a figure of a woman or oh, really? by uh, buying a purse of tobacco. Wow. Gives you the secret for that. And what is the secret? Well, the fact is that this writer of, of comic fiction, fiction, Santo Kyoden, had a store that uh, sold these pouches for tobacco. I mean, mm -hmm. if you read on, he says, well, if everybody in Japan comes and buys my products, then I'll become very rich. So that's the secret. So advertising, early advertising culture. Exactly. Put these advertisements into his comic fiction constantly. So the connections between smoking and not just comic fiction, but the theater and uh, Western studies, Dutch studies, Chinese studies in this period, there's so, so many intersections that, that I'm wanting to explore. Hopefully try to have some understanding about why smoking is so much a part of modern Japanese culture. Well, that sounds great. Um, and again, thank you so much for being with us today. And its uh, I'll just say again um, for listeners, um, the book is called Food and Fantasy in Early Modern Japan, and it's just a really wonderful, um, rich and evocative and wonderfully written study that I think will be of use and interest to lots of people, not just in Japan studies, but in um, cultural history in general and um, history of food, history of medicine. And it's very, very assignable. Um, so best of luck to you in your next project, and thank you so much. And there's another book that might be useful for courses, too, that came out last year. It's an edited volume that I did with uh, Stephanie Osman. Uh, it's called Past and Present in Japanese Foodways, and that book's evil in early modern times, but also modern times. So there's uh, some wonderful chapters by scholars on ramen. Uh, that's one of the themes, uh, and, and a number of other things that uh, people who teach four courses on Japan, Japanese culture or food ways might find interesting. It's published by the University of Illinois Press. It came out in 2010. Great. Thank you so much. That's, I'm going to actually put that on my list and order that oh, this week. <laughs> so thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.